Not anything in the world could have ever got anybody ready for April the 19th. Just there's nothing that, that, that you could prepare you for that. And this devastating uh, explosion went off. And uh, I mean, this thing, this, this explosion, uh, and, and, and when I say explosion, it's, it's like a kaboom, that kind of, that kind of a blast. So we all ran out into the parking lot to see what had happened. And when we looked into downtown, uh, there was a black, big mushroom cloud coming up over the top of the city with just huge amounts of black smoke billowing up from downtown, pouring into the sky over Oklahoma City. 20 years ago, terror struck the heartland. Packed inside a rider rental truck, Timothy McVeigh's bomb exploded. 4,800-pound cocktail of oil, fuel, and fertilizer cut the Alfred P. Murrow building in half, ending the lives of 168 people, including 15 children in a YMCA daycare. Thick puffs of black smoke spewed from the heart of downtown, filling the blue sky over Oklahoma City. This wasn't some fast-paced metropolis that had known terror before. Tornadoes? Drought? Wildfires? Sure. But a terrorist with a bomb and an anti-government agenda? Here? This is a place of hard-working people. Old-fashioned values and unceasing courtesy. How could this happen here? Jerry Flowers worked as a hostage negotiator for the Oklahoma City Police at the time. He was one of the first to arrive on the scene. ...concept of what could have happened. People were running from downtown, out of downtown, they were getting away. And the more people that we started seeing running to us were covered with uh, gray dust and blood. Nothing down there had color. It was all gray. Everything was gray. It was like you're watching a black and white movie. Everything was gray. And the reason for that is when the building exploded, the building basically was made of cement. And that cement powder had blown over everything and took the color from everything. Uh, there was broken glass everywhere on the street. You couldn't see the street for the broken glass and debris that had fallen in the streets from buildings, not from the Murrow Building, but from buildings around the Murrow Building. The first thing that I saw uh, was an ambulance that was parked uh, on the very northwest corner. His lights on as one EMT, one, one emergency medical technician there is all it was. And he was screaming at every one of us that was coming up to the building, just apply pressure and stop the bleeding. That's what he was screaming at us. But on this one lady I saw sitting on that curb, she was totally gray. And the child sitting beside her, eight, six, eight, seven, eight-year-old kid, sitting beside her was the same way, they were just gray. But protruding from that gray was blood. And they were both alive, just bleeding profusely. Uh, but she wasn't paying any attention to herself. She had her arms around this little girl and holding a rag against that child's head who was also bleeding and trying to console that baby by telling that baby she was going to be okay. I stopped right on that northwest corner uh, on 5th Street and I looked up 5th Street looking east and 5th Street was gone. This was, it, was, there was, it wasn't there. All I could see were vehicles uh, on the north side of that building, and they were all on fire. 
That's where the fire was coming from. That was smoke. My partner, Steve, said, let's go in. And uh, we turned, and right on the very northwest corner of the building was a, um, um, if you will, a, a hole that had been looked like hollowed out at the side of that building. It was it was actually windows and doors used to be there gone. One of the other Oklahoma City officers at the time, he was screaming. He was standing right on the edge of that window screaming at us. Let's get these people out. And uh, that kind of flipped my switch back on. And I ran up towards that side of the building and Steve and I and, and, and many other officers that were there started going into this, into the building at that area right there. As soon as we got in there, uh, and let me stop and tell you this, you didn't just walk into it. Uh, the concrete floors, the walls, the sheetrock, the rebar, uh, the concrete was all busted and broken. Uh, the concrete were 10 feet in diameter, sticking up at 45 degree angles. You were crawling over that stuff and crawling into that stuff. And uh, so there wasn't no just walking in there. But when we got into that particular room, Sergeant Goodspeed, Mike Goodspeed was in there, big guy. And he started screaming, everybody shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And you could hear a pin drop in this, in this area we were in. And there were seven or eight of us in there. And you could faintly hear the cry of a female voice saying, help me. And if I get emotional during this, bear with me. But that voice started saying, help me, help me, help me. And we're trying to, and we started digging, trying to move stuff to see if we could find that voice. And the more we'd dig, the more noise we'd make, and we kept covering it up and drowning it out. Um, seemed like forever that we were in that area. And uh, finally, that voice fainted away and was gone. And we never found her. We never found that voice. Steve and I went on further in to the south as we walked into that building and and uh, the, the dust in that area, the gray dust was so thick that you could you could move your hand in front of your face back and forth and move the air that you were breathing. The dust was so thick. And as that dust started to um, uh, move, it started to get much, much darker the further we went into this room. Um, as, we, uh, as we started to move south into that building, we drastically started to go down. And it got so dark that uh, you couldn't see. You couldn't. I couldn't see you standing in front of me three feet away. That's how dark it was. We literally going in there would hold the back of each other's coat. And I'm talking about Steve and I to walk our way through there. The water, as we started going into these cracks and crevices and crawling over and under and, and through these pillars of uh, concrete and rebar, the water started getting up to about shin high on me. In fact, that pair of cowboy boots on and, uh, and, and water came over and filled those up just right off the bat. We, as we started working our way through this little alley or this little tunnel more or better to explain it, you could see a pillar of light. So we crawled through this tunnel 
not not we may we may could have stepped on people we could have walked over we'd have never known it because you couldn't see but as we got to the end of that tunnel that light that we could see was not a bright light by any means it was bright compared to where we were but we opened up into a a room that i could best describe like a cave and it turned out that's what the pit was we were in the pit of the underneath the Murrow building is what we went The pit was created when the blast from the truck bomb pushed out the ceilings of the first and second floors. From the floors above that, it would look like a massive hole into which debris fell and disappeared. One rescuer commented to the media that the pit was like a glimpse into hell itself. The main search and rescue efforts continued in this area where the highest number of victims were found. More than 700 tons would be removed from the building altogether but the removal came at a cost. Each time a piece was cleared away, the structure began to weaken and threatened to collapse, halting recovery efforts. Uh, just everybody we came in contact with was dead. In the, in the, in the, on the south side of the building where the, the rider truck was obviously parked, when it blew out, it created a large crater or an indention into the side of the building, kind of, of a semicircle, and all the floors had fell and pancaked on top of each other. We were underneath that. We got down there. I could hear people crying and screaming, get me out of here, get me out of here. And... Um, uh, Immediately, we start trying to find voices in, in the in the in the dent in the very dense lighting that we had. Um, we were down there. I don't know how long I was down there for quite some time, and and uh, you know, going to sounds to try to find people. A firefighter from above us on one of the stacked floors above us handed down to us, handed down actually to handed me. It was a generator uh, that had a light on it that when you fired it up, this light would come on and illuminate everything. And he handed it down there, and I set it on the floor to my feet. And as I'm standing there, now you could literally reach above your head and touch the floor above your head. That's how packed in we were down there. And um, I turned on that light to see where these voices were coming from, for all of us down there to see. And when I did, we stopped in absolute just amazement that... Uh, Everywhere you looked, where these floors had pancaked together, there there were uh, two and three foot circles of coagulated blood that was coming down through the cracks. Everywhere you looked, and it seemed like everywhere you looked, and and these were obviously people who had been killed. They were crushed between the floors, and the floors actually were bleeding. That's what it looked like. The floors were bleeding in uh, circles of. Uh, all, all seemed like everywhere you looked, there were circles of blood, and the floors were bleeding. And um, there's no way to put that in any kind of perspective other than you were standing in a chamber that was that was death. That's what it was. You were standing in a chamber of where a lot of people had just lost their lives. And literally, I mean absolutely literally, you were standing on sacred ground and all of us looked we all stopped and looked at that and and um, it 
basically in disbelief. I mean, your your body and your mind goes into a, a function that you tune things out to tune things in that you've got to do. And that was the that was the 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 focus of it all was right there in that pit. It all collapsed down to that one central location where we were at. And uh, it was very it was a very solemn moment when those when that light came on and we saw what we were standing under. It was a very it was very very humbling. see was her back just a little bit of her back and she was in and she was in, uh, in, in a wall and this wall had literally grown fingers around her was still rebar and concrete and had her trapped in a little area in the wall I couldn't see her head and uh, I could see just her back and a little bit of her hind end that's it and I reached up through the rebar and concrete and put my hand on her back and I told her I'm going to get you out and she started screaming at me and yelling and boy I mean she was giving me a fit as long as she was doing that I knew she was alive but in the reality of things there was no way on this planet that I was going to get her out of that just I couldn't get her out she had to be cut out of there with heavy equipment to get her out but as I was trying to comfort her I heard another lady screaming and just below me in, in, a, in a hole it looked like a hole but it was just a little pit uh, I could see a lady head above the water. That water was coming up, and she was about to drown. She was screaming at us. She kept screaming, don't let me drown, don't let me drown. A fireman had worked his way down to her, and he grabbed her by the head and was holding her head above the water because she had no strength to keep, her, to keep her breathing. And, of course, we're all looking for something we could, like, I mean, I think, well, let's find a water hose. We put it in her mouth so when she does go underwater, she can still breathe through that tube. There was nothing like that down there. And uh, but that water finally stopped and crested right about her chin. And uh, to, to then allow several people to get down there and get her untwisted from under there. Heard another lady screaming, and uh, I could see her uh, under a floor that the floor had stopped falling just inches above her to keep her crushed between two floors. And there was a man down there working on her. I later found out it was a doctor. And her and she had one of her legs was trapped in that floor and she couldn't get out of there. And uh, they amputated her leg right there. While we were down there, they amputated her leg and pulled her out from under there. A fireman, fire chief actually, uh, one of the deputy fire chiefs started screaming down just a floor above us down into this pit, get out. We found another bomb. And this bomb's bigger than the one that blew this place up. I'll never forget him saying that. But he started screaming, get out. We found another bomb. And my partner, Steve, ran on to him, grabbed me by the shoulder. He said, get out of this building now. We've got to get out of this building. Well, I, I reached up through that cement and I touched that girl on the back and said, I will be back for you. I will come back. Um, oh, it's the hardest thing I did in my life. The hardest thing I ever did in my life was to walk away from her. All three women that Jerry came across ended up making it out of the pit. Jerry later would meet all three, including the woman in the wall, 
Terry Shaw. When he visited her, he jokingly asked that she turn around because he had never gotten the chance to see her face. All he could recognize was her back. The second bomb threat that forced Jerry and the other rescuers to evacuate ended up being only bomb squad simulators used in the training at the FBI office in the building. As Jerry was running back in after the threat had cleared, he followed his partner Don Browning and his police dog into the area where the YMCA daycare had been. But when they told us to go back in, we came back up on the south side where the plaza is. But when I walked up to the side of the building, Don immediately and went into uh, a little room that was um, just a hole in the wall, basically. And as I walked right, when I got right up to the edge of the opening where he went in, Don was coming out. And he was carrying a, a child wrapped up in a blanket. And uh, and uh, when he when I walked up to him, I, I knew the kid. I knew this kid was dead because of the, he had obviously he had wrapped him up. And I asked Don, I said, "Was is his little boy or little girl?" He said, "I don't know." He said, "I don't know." Again, everything's gray. We walked out, and uh, the nurse. They well, I walked. We walked out onto the plaza by the children's playground. That's where the uh, they. Kids in the daycare center had a playground up there. We turned that into a makeshift morgue. That's what we did. And uh, Don and I carried this baby over to that area. And as we're holding the baby, Don's got him in his arms, and I'm standing with Don. And we opened the blanket to rewrap him. And when I did, uh, there was a brown teddy bear on his on his uh, shirt that he had on. And uh, I looked at that, and uh, he had been decapitated from his chin up, his head was gone. And uh, I remember we laid him down, his little African-American little boy, and uh, we laid him down among other children that had been brought out and, and laid in the same area. And um, and I'll tell you what, it was a heart-wrenching, man, a heart-wrenching thing. In that area, in that area, when somebody would scream that I found another one or I got one, there was five or six those kids that we carried out of that one little area. I stayed down there till later that night and uh, to finally to the point, and all of us were, uh, what we used to have on was blue, blue jeans and blue jackets. Now we're all gray too and, and, and blood soaked. So I remember at the end of that day, I decided to, uh, it, was, it was probably time for me to, to shut her down because I knew I was going to get started back at next morning really, really early. So we left and I started to go home and that's when I learned that my neighbor of 19 years, Olita Biddy, uh, was in that building and she worked there and uh, Social Security office. And, uh, and, I rem- and, and her husband, Henry, lived right beside me. Uh, out in in Tuttle at the time. And I was compelled to stop uh, by their house on the way home because I had no idea Olita was in there. Just no clue. Known her for 19 years. And uh, literally, literally right across the road from me, lived right across the road from me in the country. So I was compelled to stop, and I did on the way home, and I was still dirty, and I stopped that that Taurus in their front driveway, and I get out, and Henry and their kids walk out into the driveway 
and uh, and old Henry walked up to me and put his arms around me and consoled me in that driveway instead of me consoling him. And uh, I told him, I said, Henry, I had no idea. I had no idea that old lady was in there or I'd still be there. And he said, no, Jerry, she's with God. She, she's not there. She's in heaven. And I looked at Henry and his kids and, and their comfort that they gave me just was, just was overwhelming. So I went home, and uh, when I got home, my two boys were there, and uh, uh, I literally went home. I took a shower. Uh, I didn't I didn't eat, and uh, I took my two kids. And I went to bed and helped my boys all night. Um, I slept sound because physically I was totally wasted, like everybody else was. Uh, after that, I don't think I slept again. Jerry and Don would find Olita's body the very next day. In the days after the blast, Jerry wrote down every detail he could remember from the hours he spent combing through the building. Because of his thorough report, Jerry was chosen as one of the five victims' advocates to testify against both Timothy Gouvet and co-conspirator Terry Nichols. We were all chosen by the attorney's office too, and we were flown to Denver. And um, the first trial, quite amazing. I probably was never so humbled in all of my life as we sat in a room waiting to testify, but you were in there with victims that had survived the bombing. Uh, Some of them had lost legs. Uh, Some of them were disfigured. Some of them, uh, and most of them, were family members uh, that uh, had lost a loved one in the bombing. But to sit with these people and and to listen to their stories, to to be comforted by them and us comforting, you know, both sides, uh, it was very, very humbling. Um, And I walked into the courthouse, uh, into the courtroom, and uh, Judge Mates was the was the judge. And I sat in the jury stand, uh, the box, jury box, and the jury sitting beside me on my right side was just right there by me. It was a really tight area we were in. Remember the jurors, uh, they, were, they were taken by some of the dramatic details, especially uh, the little boy with the brown teddy bear. And my wife was sitting on the back row, Marisa, of the courtroom, because I told her when I testified I wanted her there. She provided a strength to me uh, to help me keep going. So as I watched Marisa sitting in the back row, and I'm sitting in front of the courthouse and I'm testifying, there was a lady sitting beside her, an African-American lady that I didn't know, I'd never seen her in my life. And um, she was sitting by Marisa. Marisa was kind of consoling her, and they were kind of sitting there holding each other as I was testifying. And I started talking about this little boy. Um, he was identified as Aaron Coverdale. I didn't know him. I didn't know. I didn't know a name until I was in the courtroom. And that was Aaron. He was six years old, and he was in the daycare center, and uh, along with his brother Elijah. Didn't know that either until then. But Aaron was that little boy that we'd carried out, and uh, and that was his grandmother sitting in the back row. Uh, and uh, Mrs. Coverdale 
was crying and very upset, as, as, as any grandparent would be, as I'm telling about her grandson. And as I got finished testifying, I was taken off the stand by some U.S. Marshals and walked into a little room to wait to go back to the holding area. And as I did, uh, Mrs. Coverdale was allowed to walk in there. And she didn't say nothing. And as I stood in there, she walked up to me and put her arms around me and told me it was going to be okay. And that that was her grandson and thanked me. And boy, Adam, I tell you what, my heart was ripped out of my chest. McVeigh was convicted and executed by lethal injection in 2001. Nichols was sentenced to life in prison with no hope of parole. In the weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, Attitudes toward it have become tense. Some believe it's time to move on from this event. Time to stop dredging up the memories of the day and the horrific images associated with it. But Flowers said he could never forget April 19th, and he doesn't want to. He witnessed a great evil that brought a city to its knees, but he also saw it rise again. Those stories like that one day will be nothing more than something that somebody has written because we'll all be gone. But those stories don't ever need to be forgotten. It needs people need to know that there's more to that building down there now than a reflection pool and some chairs. That is a beautiful symbolism of what it represents. But I don't want to ever let anybody forget what it was really like the violence that took place that day can, can needs to never occur again in our country. And adults like lost their lives. And people don't want to ever not know that. Uh, not for any other reason than the impact that it had in our world at that particular time. That blast at 9.02 a.m. on April the 19th was a blast or an explosion that I heard was heard around the entire world. Everybody on this planet knew what had happened that day in Oklahoma City. And, uh, and it's your job not to let that story never be not told. more likely to find Jerry out in a cow pasture nowadays. He really fits out there, walking the fields in a starch blue jeans, boots, gigantic cowboy hat, and a handlebar mustache that would make Tom Selleck jealous. He works for the Oklahoma Department of Agriculture now, chasing outlaws who are stealing the working man's cattle, as he likes to say. But when April rolls around each year, Jerry says the memories come flooding back. That was just the strength of Oklahomans. That's that's what we did. And that, uh, after all, 20 years, 20 years down the road, uh, to us it just happened yesterday. Uh, I don't really, I don't really talk about all this. You know, when we sit down in general conversation with people, you don't talk about this kind of stuff. 
some of that stuff you want to put away and let it be there. Um, but um, uh, it brings back memories and it brings back feelings that are, are cut to the quick. Um, just before the implosion, I wanted to go back down there uh, just simply because I wanted to close some doors for me. I walked back through those floors and walked back through the areas where the daycare center was and it had all been cleaned out, getting it ready for the implosion. In fact, the, the, the dynamite was already set in there. But I walked back through and did all of our video and, and, and then of course the next day it was brought down. I, I captured all that on, on, a, on that video because one day I wanted my grandkids' grandkids to see that. Uh, because on the back of one of the police cars that was parked down there as uh, part of the rescue workers, they had written on the back windshield of the police car, we will never forget. And uh, that has stayed 20 years later. That's the slogan today, we'll never forget. Today, the reflecting pool, uh, the beautiful chairs, the green grass, um, reflects what we want the people to remember now. But for us that were there just minutes after that thing blew up, close your eyes and you can still hear them people crying to get me out. You can still see the dust moving in front of you that you're trying to breathe. You can still see the, the gray matted uh, debris in people's hair that are laying there looking at you, but they're gone. And you can still feel the feelings of the, the officers that were there that day that worked so hard, but you felt like you didn't do a thing. And all you gotta do is close your eyes and 